Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Tyson Yunkaporta is an academic, author, and researcher who is a member of the Appalach clan in far north Queensland. He looks at global systems from an indigenous perspective. He carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior lecturer in indigenous knowledge at Deakin University in Melbourne. His book, Sand Talk, provides a template for living. It's about how we learn and how we remember. It's about talking to everybody and listening carefully. It's about finding different ways to look at things and most of all, it's about indigenous thinking and how it can save the world. Tyson, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Yeah, good to be here, Nick. So Tyson, you were deaf until you were eight with otitis media and post-operation, you could hear what everyone was saying, but found that you didn't <laughs> like it very much. Can you tell me about this experience and what you heard that you didn't like? Ah, well, maybe I'm just projecting backwards, you know, on, on not liking things. Because I don't know, when you first see things encounter things as a kid you know and 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 quite autistic spectrum too so you know <laughs> so you know i'm standing in the playground saying things like oh i get it um so we're all excluding that person over there because she doesn't have a penis yeah boys let's do it you know <laughs> like you know um I, I just just trying to make sense of all the all the weirdness that you know you, you only see up until then um, you, you know, but hearing it and, and, and sort of the weird nakedness of the things that come out of people's mouths and just not being able to, you know, really process it against any kind of framework of um, right or wrong or fairness or justice or anything else. It's just, you know, looking at it and it's like, oh, all right, that's why I keep getting hit um, in, the, in the back of the head uh, because people are usually you know, shouting something out back there to me. And <laughs> and then when I don't reply, they get angry and then they come up and, you know, punch me in the back of the head. All right, I, I got it. So a lot of it was just really basic like that. Um, I, I guess, I don't know, I probably project backwards like some kind of sense of that, that I have, you know, some kind of innate bloody awesome, you know, social justice meter or something that was just, you know, finding all this terrible and shocking but if i think about it properly and and objectively i think i will you know i probably didn't <laughs> you know i was probably more like just you know um trying to figure it all out and if i can project backwards in a previous interview you said in the second part of your life you saw your identity as being cultural and tied to material culture so you were playing the didgeridoo and making boomerangs and clap sticks and dancing and hunting why did your focus shift to understanding your identity and culture as more of a knowledge system not just the know-how yeah well it's um it's it's weird but the, the sort of less regard you have for your sort of uh, personal safety and the less ambition you have and the sort of a more of a death wish you have the, <laughs> the um, I don't know, there's kind of a, a, a period of, um, I don't know, there's a kind of strange freedom that comes with that. Um, you know, I guess it weirdly came out of a lot of suicidal ideation, you know, where I didn't really, uh, I stopped caring how other people saw me um, and I stopped caring about even how I saw myself usually that would lead to, you know, deeper depression and, and sort of death. But, you know, in my case, it was quite inspiring to suddenly be in the world without, um, 
sort of, you know, it's been a few years sort of going, oh, well, this is this is me. This is what I do because of my group identity. You know, so I'm going to do this and, oh, you know, <laughs> look more like what people think I should be, you know, looking like, and then people will like me kind of thing. <laughs> you know, all that weird narcissistic stuff you go through as a young a young lad. Um, yeah, but I came out of the other side of that with... Um, I don't know, it's quite inspiring to suddenly go, ah, oh, you know, it's actually not about any of that at all. That's not what makes us who we are. And that's not how our uh, society works, you know, in our Indigenous communities here at all. You know, it's not that performative business. It's not the, the um, proclamations of, you know, identity markers and things like that. Um, it's actually, you know, really amazing patterns of, of how to be in the world in relation to the law of the land and in relation to the rest of the community and the um, massive, massive changes in the landscape around you all the time. So what I found particularly was just the, the enormous adaptive capacity and the kind of almost algorithms running through culture that are um, incredibly responsive, like you know, deep learning, you know, algorithms that are built into these ancient institutions um, of culture that pretty much, you know, I mean, some of the material culture items like clapsticks and didgeridoos and stuff, these are just, you know, expressions of that law and arising from that law, you know, and from those patterns of being and governance and, um, you know, identity and all that sort of thing. Uh, they're just kind of expressions, you know, of that. They're not the pattern itself so you know coming into that pattern and, and seeing it for the first time properly you know because i mean most of the time most of us are like you know fish in water fish doesn't know what water is you know and it's the same with us in our cultures so you spent 20 years gathering stories of your people across australia and asking permission to share them i'm curious if any of these conversations that you had or listened to changed your life and if so how Ah. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's like I was just saying with land, you know, change is incremental. You know, every now and then you do get a, a, a cataclysm um, that changes you, you know. Um, but usually 99% of the change that happens to you is incremental. And it's like that uh, evolutionary pressure and co-evolutionary dynamics uh, that are constantly going on, you know. Um, and it's about moving around in that, and, you know. Uh, recognizing that the system you're in is sentient and that you're a part of that system observing itself. Um, you're going to miss a lot because <laughs> especially if you're just using your brain uh, to look at it, you know, it's nobody can be that hypervigilant to know everything that's going on in their system all the time. Um, you know, that's why I guess uh, the most sustainable cultures in the world all have uh, elders, you know, who, you know, we make sure that they have the time uh, to sit back and observe and reflect and analyze, you know, um, while drawing on bodies of law, um, you know, in order to make sense of <laughs> changes that are happening and, you know, um, you know, make, uh, make predictions that are informed, you know, by deep holistic knowledge and, and, and complex, you know, systems of knowledge and, and living systems. The big changes, look, you know, probably nobody likes to think about this, and I particularly don't because, you know, I, I don't like revisiting trauma very much, but probably the, 
the biggest changes in my life of, of, of accompanied, um, you know, fairly massive, hideous traumas. Um, and, you know, being able to make sense of that later and learn what you need to learn and then, you know, adapt and move with that, um, you know, that allows you to um, actually, you know, make lemonade <laughs> from all those lemons. Yeah, so probably most of the best things that have ever happened to me have been like earth-shattering, you know, um, destruction of relationships and places and insults and injury to body and dignity and mind and everything else. You, um, I, I guess in Europe, there's that uh, the Druidic, in the Druidic tradition, there is this thing in the L-O-R-E lore of that, of that tradition that, that, you know, a, a person can't become a Druid until they've been thrice wounded. You know, so you have to have three horrific things happen to you before you can gain any kind of wisdom or really start uh, progressing, you know, in the Druidic law. And I guess it's the, it's the same, the same way. To sustain your oral culture point of view, you play around with language and the very nature of print. Each chapter is based on real life yarns and then carved into traditional objects with the knowledge then partially translated into text for the book. Talk to me about what these real life yarns are and what you would compare this carving to in non-Indigenous cultures. Mm. Well, I, I think uh, the closest I can come to it um, with the carving is um, mnemonics, like um, memory devices. You know, do you have any of these? Um, I don't know. I, I guess it's it's pretty much in its infancy in, in a lot of the the world's cultures that have kind of forgotten um, their knowledge base. Uh, you know, through various cataclysms, you know, climate change, but also uh, perverse incentive systems and economies that have been placed over them and um, and, and, and sort of severed them from their land based knowledge. Um, you know, people those very much but you know you, but you know it's still there in its infancy you, you're tying knots in pieces of string and or tying a piece of string around your finger to remember something um there is a, a scholar lynn kelly who talks about the um uh, stone circles and things like that as big mnemonic devices um and that that was their purpose um, you know those those big stone monuments and obelisks and things um you know, after people uh, started to transition into sedentary agricultural lifestyles not very long ago, a few thousand years, you know, that they needed um, some large things in the landscape to replicate the, um, the inner maps, you know, the spatial maps of memory, uh, which is how human memory works. You know, most of your memory is, is, is based on your spatial um, awareness and operations in your um, and also on narrative and these two sort of combine in these big story maps you know so you, you have to map that somehow knots on a piece of string is, is is a pretty basic way to do it but it does uh call to mind that, that sort of haptic cognition where you have neural processes uh happening beyond your brain and into your environment around you into the tools that you use uh, into the objects that you make and imbue with meaning. This is something we've always done since, I don't know, you mentioned Homo erectus before, but, you know, there's million-year-old carved shells from Homo erectus, you know, where you can see that kind of thing as imbuing of objects with meaning, you know, through a kind of metaphoric, uh, symbolic, visual language, you know. Um, 
yeah, that these things, you know, you can encode terabytes of information into an object um, uh, with a sort of a power image and with the object itself, you know, you can almost use that as a, as a memory stick, you know, like a, a USB where you, <laughs> or an external hard drive, you can pick it up and, and remember everything that went into that. So I guess all the yarns that I've had of, you know, I've been carving objects while having them. And, um, you know, and then sitting down and trying to aggregate all those narratives together and try and make sense of the world and do a bit of an analysis. And so in doing that analysis, there was a lot of informational process. So I did it with the carving and imbued those carved objects with the analysis and with the stories and everything else. So you work by carving everything first and then translating it. Is it hard to find space in the city to carve wood with the tomahawk and knife without people calling the cops on you? It is, it is, um, they, and, the, and the cops do come. There was, <laughs> there was one situation where I had to, it was, yeah, while I was writing the book, I had to hide for, um, hide out for 24 hours because there was a full, um, you know, like a terrorist response <laughs> kind of thing. There was like six cop cars came because, you know, there, there's a person outside with an axe, like, what are we going to do? I mean, it's, and it's, you know, it's a brown guy with an axe kind of thing. And, and I actually had a friend who knew those local police and he was, he was telling me about how they were talking about it and how it was reported. And it's, you know, um, you know, a brown guy with a beard and an axe. I think he's a terrorist, you know? Um, and, and I just had to, um, so I hid in that guy's house and, and he, um, he actually knew the police. And so they were going around knocking door to door, looking for me, you know, and I just sort of stayed inside out in the back room for 24 hours until it all died down and, and then um, <laughs> snuck away. <laughs> and I was lucky I had that, that fellow there who's, you know, helping me out, you know, and answering the door and saying, no, no, I haven't seen anybody <laughs> answering that description. Can you help me understand the idea of traditional carving as an extension of the mind and how this is the key to understanding consciousness and the way humans make meaning and memory? You know, in the kind of more postmodern sort of theoretical side of things, you can look at the new materialism and all that kind of thing, um, and you'll get some hints there. There's also, you know, the, this concept of embodiment, you know, that's going around. That's something that the arts community is pretty excited about, and, um, you know, a few different theorists. But, you know, if you want the scientific sort of side of things, look into uh, haptic cognition and uh, distributed cognition. Uh, there's a lot of really good studies um, that show the way that works um, and it's measurable and they've managed to find it in three different species so far, not, not only humans, um, you know, but at, at the most basic level, it's, um, you know, this unique sort of thing that we've developed in evolutionary terms whereby a, um, you know, any tool that you might be holding or even just a stick, you know, that becomes recognized by your brain as part of your body, like an extension of your arm. And, you know, I mean, so if you picked up something long on your desk right now and you were holding it and you went to poke specifically on one spot, you know, you bullseye that spot straight up. And, I mean, how are you doing that? <laughs> That's not something that, uh, you know, most entities can do. Um, just straight up like that. That's, um, that's something that's pretty unique to, you know, I think it's more than three species, though. I, I can think of at least a dozen who've... Um, We've got that down. You call this methodology? Is it U M P A N? Oh yeah, just that's how I think of it. You know, I, I don't want to brand it like or, or 
market it like that or anything because that's like no that's just my own unique family language around that and this <laughs> you know so it's not you know i don't want people on the other side of the world to start going oh yeah whooping, i'm doing that and because no you're not i mean that's that's my word um that's our word and, and so you know um that's a, a way to think of it like that because that has a whole heap of different meanings you know open Mm-hmm. You know, it means making, uh, carving, doing it means a few different things. Um, but it's also the word that's been um, the word that we use back home for writing yeah. is open as well. So, I mean, that just, you know, really made me think about that. It also means cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To cut something, you know. So for me, that was um, that's just how I naturally sort of think about it, you know. I'd love to know more about us too and how writing in this way serves you and the reader. Yeah, well, nothing in our way, when I say our way, human, like actually human way, not this sort of recent, you know, hyper individual culture that um, um, rose out of, um, it it arose out of Protestantism, not quite recently, this um, hyper individuality. And that, that actually um, was exacerbated by the, the widespread, um, uh, widespread phenomenon of literacy uh, throughout the Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic sort of world. So it's a very recent thing that, that hyper individualism in our way as human beings, you know, indigenous people who are, are still retaining a memory of what it is to be human. We know that there's just no, um, nothing exists on its own. You know, all there is is relationships. You know, so you as an individual, if, if you're an individual, you're nothing. You, you don't even exist, you know, which is really hard to wrap your head around. You know, so, I mean, a lot of that is, is that, that idea, you know, with, um, you know, meeting people who were like that for the first time, a lot of us were calling, calling them ghosts because you pretty much, you know, there's something there, but, but it's not a, a connected being. So it almost doesn't exist. <laughs> it's just uh, if it's existing in relation, it's in wrong relation. But basically the idea of us too is um, just letting people know we have a lot of pronouns in Aboriginal languages that don't exist in English, you know, and, and those pronouns, uh, they kind of map, map your relations, map your relationships, you know, all the different kinds of you and, and, and others that there are. Um, and that's not about your identity. Your pronoun is not referring to who you are, you know, like you. It's not referring to that. It's referring to whatever relationship is most uh, relevant in, in the moment. You know, so um, if you're in a context where it's, um, it's you and, you know, a, a kinship pair, like a partner, like somebody else, which, you know, that's, that's pretty much the only interactions you have with people is, you know, in relatedness in that way. Um, then it's us too, yeah. You, you're referring to, you know, us too. Us too are doing this. Nale, you know. Um, let's go. Us too. Us too are podcast. You know, but then there's heaps. Yeah, that's it. But then there's heaps of other pronouns too, with um, you know, different relations. So you know, larger groups, but you know, um, like only us. So like us, but not them. <laughs> you know, um, us belonging to him, us belonging to her, us belonging to them. All of us, you know, there's all these different kinds of pronouns. Um, but interestingly, in my language, family's language, and a lot, a lot of other languages, there's like, uh, 
there's no gendered pronouns as well because the gender is kind of irrelevant in that it's not as not as relevant as the um, as the relation because we're not you know projecting our fabulous group identities that make up our you know facebook page this is what i am i'm like i don't know 136 tahitian and princess or whatever and 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 bloody you know um, a quarter irish and or something else and that's my unique and beautiful um biology and that's makes up my bloody amazing identity you know along with um post-structuralist bloody <laughs> um whatever theorist and and you know um and you know free britney you know um <laughs> all these little markers of our identity these things that we accrue and put together this little passport or id of you know who we are that's that's not who we are and there's um there's i keep saying this but there's nothing inside of you 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 don't have anything you know we belong to this sort of development-based culture that's um you know aching for self-individualization all the time and i'm doing so much work to individual to actualize the self but it's this you know individual nightmare where all, all you're doing is unraveling your being more and more and more the more you actualize, the more you develop, the more you separate yourself from relationships with um, humans and non-humans and most importantly, place and land. And once you're severed from that, then you're no longer adapting. You're no longer moving. You're incredibly vulnerable and static and inflexible. And I don't see that personal growth as being any kind of growth because there is no person. All there is is relationships. Everything that you are exists in a web goes out into the world but at the same time you are fabulous and unique but it's not you your individual patterning that does that it's your web of relations is unique like a fingerprint nobody else on the planet has that web of relations so you're creating like you know this little this amazing world and web of relationships that intersects infinitely with other systems of relations and, um, and that's something that keeps creation in motion and it's quite beautiful. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine why people would not be satisfied with that. Is that how indigenous thinking enhances non-indigenous thinking is it gets us away from the individual? I, I would hope it would just draw people's attention to what's already there. You know, um, you know, in our way, everything you need is always around you. You just have to notice it. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems like magic to people like, oh, through the power of positive thinking, I've manifested this thing, you know, and no, you haven't manifested it. You just noticed it was there at last, but pretty much everything you need is there. And if you're trying to do something and the things you need to do that are not immediately accessible, then you are acting out of context and out of relation. So you should probably not do that thing, you know, and just be aware and observe what's around you in your sphere of influence. And, what that's telling you about what you need to do next. Because your web of relations is like this self-organizing system. It's it's sentient and it's telling you what you need to do. <laughs> so, you know, listen to it, you know, observe and um and follow your pattern and get it done. It's um it's not that hard to do. It's more about the respectful dialogue based on reciprocity rather than competition. Can you say more on this reciprocity approach and how it can produce innovative solutions to sustainability issues? 
Absolutely. Um, and you've got to come to it with, you know, stop seeking and, and just allow yourself to be sought, you know, um, and you come into these dialogues and, you know, people who are in your network of relations and, and, and people from their networks of relations, you know, end up, uh, you know, congregating around these sort of strange attractors or these basins of attraction, you know, in, in complex systems that, you know, things that sort of need to get done that a larger sentient system is trying to put together to keep things going. And you just sort of start to come around those things, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, yarns happen that are, I mean, you know, they, they do have that kind of reciprocity going on, but it's, um, you know, it's also very vibrant and it's not uh, monologuing and taking turns and, you know, back and forth around the circle with a talking stick or any crap like that. You're actually, um, you know, you're actually engaged in knowledge production uh, with an aggregate of stories and points of view and an aggregate of minds, and they don't have to agree with each other. You know, you can very comfortably have two stories sitting in relation alongside each other or many stories mm -hmm. that are all saying different things and that are all contradicting each other. But in the aggregate there, you get the full picture. I want to know more about that knowledge production because you've said a book shouldn't just increase knowledge. It should increase what is knowable. So how does sand talk increase what is knowable? I think it just gives people permission to bring their story, their personal story to the reading. Reading a book is always a dialogical process, but I think readers are encouraged to smother that, elevate this writer as this bloody genius or something who they're supposed to put on a pedestal and, um, open themselves up and allow themselves to be inseminated by this amazing bloody <laughs> brain, um, you know, that's coming off the pages at them and like pouring into their empty vessel of their soul. <laughs> there's a reason why there's margins there. Yeah, exactly. Ah, and it's just, um, you know, deep down there, there is something going on because you are in a network of relations that's made up of, of, of spatial knowledge and story and narratives and, and, and big networks of people. And, and so that is always working in the background. And so your stories are always connecting, you know, with the narrative of that whatever book you're reading. You know, even if it's nonfiction, it's still narrative. Everything's narrative, you know, and everything is placed and you're still connecting with it on that way, but you're able to do that unconsciously. But I guess um, my book kind of has a few um, boom moments that, that are kind of designed to... Um, to sort of shock people out of that and bring that more to the front where, where they're able to read actively uh, as an act of engagement, as a kind of, you know, Socratic dialectic, you know, in, in, in the mix with an aggregate of stories from lots of people, including theirs, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think just for a minute it allows people to see themselves but I guess a lot of people lose it afterwards when they're trying to go, what's just happened to me? And, you know, and so then they go, oh, I just must be this guy. He's amazing. He's a genius. And, you know, so I'm going to talk about how great he is. And then they lose it again because it's not about me. You know, um, like I, I'm, I take great pains to tell people, please don't call, stop saying, you know, attaching words to me like wisdom and leader and things like that. I'm, None of those things. There are very specific people in our communities who occupy those roles. And I'm really not one of them. I'm like a very low status person. And, you know, um, you know, all I've done is just sort of help people, you know, um, sort of experience uh, a way of coming into relation. 
what words would you be okay to be attached to you? Uh, you know, in the end, I, I don't really care either. I mean, I, I think that was, you know, I was telling you about that, that sort of moment that sort of came out of the suicidal ideation in my, in my youth of not really caring what people thought um, particularly at all. All I really care about is my relationships, um, you know, from my cultural perspective and maintaining those relations. And I feel quite distressed when they're disrupted. So, I mean, I care when, when sort of labels disrupt my relations because people will go, well, oh, so you reckon you're bloody somebody now, do you? <laughs> and, you know, then they don't want to talk to you. I still, I've never really been able to recover this, this, this idea of wanting to brand myself and project an image onto the world of what I am. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of mostly just unfiltered. And I don't know, there's a brief window where people are fascinated with that because, you know, some people haven't seen a person doing that before. And, you know, it's, it's usually difficult to capture one of them in the wild. And What memories of the land do Indigenous people carry with them that non-Indigenous people don't? Well, all of them. Look, this is, it's about, um, it's about age and adaptation. If we want to get back to the evolution side of things, um, let me think. All right. How's this for a metaphor? Um, innate and adaptive immunity. It's kind of like that. So immune, if you think about your immune system, your immune response, uh, that's part of the knowledge that your body has. You know, you don't hold this in your brain. You know, your body has, it has knowledge. And some of that's patterned in that innate immunity. So very, so young people have very strong innate immunity. And as you get older, that innate immunity decreases, but the adaptive immunity uh, increases and your adaptive immunity is very good at at handling let's say like viruses that have been around for a long time and have had a lot of time to like mutate and go through a lot of different changes and adaptations and elaborations your adaptive immunity deals really well with those you know but a new virus that is still like you know vanilla i guess you know a, a vanilla virus like covid you know a um what do they call it? Novel, novel virus. It's, I call it vanilla. So vanilla virus is dealt with really, really effectively by a vanilla um, immune system. So that's why young people don't tend to die as much or get very sick, you know, with COVID because, you know, it's this vanilla virus going along. And as young people do, they get real arrogant about it. And they're like laughing at all the old people dying and going, ha ha, you know, we're immune, you know, and they're making YouTube videos doing, you know, high risk infective behaviors and posting it up online and going, blah, blah, we hope all the boomers die kind of thing. And that's lovely. But, um, <laughs> but then, you know, it, they're going to be laughing on the other side of their face in a few years as this virus sort of elaborates and mutates and, and, and gets a lot more sophisticated when it ceases to be a vanilla virus and becomes a bit of a, you know, a dripple swell. Um, the innate immunity of young people is not going to cope very well with it, you know, and the adaptive immunity of your older people is going to be better suited to dealing with that virus. So suddenly you'll see the, the mortality rates, you know, in, the, in your over 50s will, will plummet and their young people's, you know, uh, illness will, um, that'll spike, you know, and then we'll be making <laughs> YouTube videos like that. Well, look, cultures are like this as well. 
you know, an older culture, the older a culture is and the older the intact institutions of that culture are, you know, if, if they're built on sustainably, which, you know, in an old culture, they always are. You can't have an old culture that has unsustainable uh, institutions like the ones that currently govern the planet, you know. But uh, so if you've got older cultures like, you know, um, um, the Bushmen in, in Southern Africa and, and uh, who, you know, arguably are just as old, if not older than, uh, you know, some of our cultures here in Australia, um, I've heard that argued before. But, I mean, of course, because of my affiliation, I can't say that I've got to go, no, we're the oldest, <laughs> we're the best. But um, we, you get old cultures like that and they're, they're incredibly, have incredibly adaptive capacities, um, which is kind of the opposite of the way people see us. You know, you asked me earlier about, you know, when I was, as a young kid, like performing, you know, bits and pieces of culture to sort of go, oh, look, I'm standing on one leg kind of thing, aren't I authentic? But, um, you know, that's not what it is. It's, they aren't these static cultures frozen in time, um, you know, never changing and like, wow, let's look at what the Stone Age used to look like. Let's look at this old culture. You know, this isn't something that's just remained unchanging through the Stone Age. If that was the case, then we'd be like the Denisovans and nobody would know anything about us because we'd have died out a long time back, you know. But the old cultures, they have that adaptation. Uh, adaptive institutions uh, that can move with the landscape and keep us moving with the landscape and with change. And they get us through all the apocalypses because there've been so many of them, you know? So I guess a, an old culture is like an old person, really good adaptive immunity, um, not great innate immunity. And then the other way around. So we have a lot of young cultures on the planet right now. And then, you know, they, they kind of have that innate productive capacity for you know getting stuff done but they just kind of <laughs> they're um unable to sort of pivot very well without it being incredibly destructive you know these are not agile cultures these are fragile cultures and and you know when they come down they come down hard so i mean you look at um some of the uh some of the cultural expressions of patriarchy um and of you know uh, you know whiteness and things like this in in some communities. So I mean, you look at the different cultures of that. Like you look in the so the Midwest in, in the United States and the expressions of of, of that kind of stuff, the unique uh, cultural expressions of those things there. And you look at the way that has come under assault in the last few decades um, from the coastal communities there on your island. Look, I tell you what, um, that it, that is a fragile, <laughs> fragile culture, and um, and 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 it's um, you know, and it's toppling. I mean, it's basically all it's had is a bit of critique directed at it, and it's um, you know, and and arguably, you know, it hasn't helped that you know their entire way of life has been destroyed with the manufacturing industry being taken away from them and everything else, and and being regarded by the powerful um, in your country as, as flyover states and all the rest, you know, you, you end up with very fragile, very angry, very um, vulnerable, you know, communities just kind of falling apart because uh, these are young cultures. You know, a lot of those cultures that I'm referring to, they've only been around since the 1950s. Um, and in that post-war period, then that's, they're not very old at all. Um, you know, so it doesn't take much to knock them down. 
and then they can't move because they're stuck there in these towns and suburbs, the poor buggers, and, and they've got nowhere to go. Well, you've said culture isn't knowing how to make a boomerang. It's not hunting kangaroos and playing a didgeridoo. It's not those cultural items. Culture is not what your hands touch. It's what moves your hands. Can you say more on this? Yeah, well, it's it's more of a methodology. Um, it's more of a, a method of inquiry. You know, you, you know, cultural knowledge is not the knowledge of your culture, you know, and it's not all your, um, your little material objects. You know, those things can spark memory of knowledge that's come from uh, your culture of inquiry, but, um, you know, it's not the culture itself. Um, you know, your culture is, is how you move and interact and relate and um, engage in knowledge production, knowledge transmission and knowledge storage, you know, within the um, web of relations that you have. And really it's the only permanent and sustainable form of, um, of uh, data storage that has ever existed, you know, like, so all these servers and everything else, these are very temporary things, you know, they're, they're obsolescent. We're trusting all the world's knowledge right now to these machines that can't last. And before that, we made the mistake of, um, of trusting it to paper, um, you know, but before Protestantism raised its, its ugly head, the, um, I'm not anti-Protestant by the way, but it, it, it was the, it was the rise of, um, uh, was out of Protestantism, you know, concurrent with the invention of the printing press that um, widespread literacy <clears throat> uh, became a thing. And that actually physically rewired the way people's brains worked. So, you know, your um, facial recognition migrated from the left side of your brain to the right side of the brain. You know, both sides of the brain, the, the, the small part that connects them became thicker and, um, you know, because a lot more had to happen between those two halves and, and it, it kind of made it a very inefficient prose it made people um, withdraw from uh, interconnection and kinship with community and, and instill more of that, you know, because suddenly they had this personal relationship with God rather than something that was mediated through community and through elders and clergy. And so boom, off they went. Um, but before that, I mean, print, print was kind of sustainable for a long time when it was only something that the clergy did. And you had, you know, a lot of acolytes there who their only job was to keep reproducing these pages um, handwriting these things out because pages decay. Uh, so what you had was an actual intergenerational transfer of knowledge. So it was still kind of sustainable. The only problem is you, you're only doing that with a small segment of the population. But when knowledge is distributed throughout the community in networks, everything needs to be distributed. You know, authority, um, information, knowledge, you know, needs to be distributed throughout the community. That doesn't mean it's just free in the world to be plucked like apples and thrown away. No, no, no. You know, all different people in your community speak for different parts of knowledge. That makes it uh, interconnected and vibrant. But the most important thing is the intergenerational aspect. You know, that knowledge is being transmitted um, through a stable kinship system and a stable uh, sort of intergenerational knowledge transmission thing through oral culture um, through visual culture stories material culture through these things um, the knowledge lasts that way mm -hmm. you know it takes a long time for stars to burn out so if you're encoding your knowledge into the night sky as a mnemonic device then it's going to last longer if you keep passing on those stories to your children and they will understand and they'll know and the knowledge will survive and so that way you know we end up with um <laughs> 
you know, um, deep knowledge that's persisted like, um, like video, but for over tens of thousands of years. And like, um, I tell you, I bet you've got data somewhere on floppy disks that's gone forever, am I right? And that's gone. And the data that you have now, nobody has photos anymore. <laughs> and everyone thinks that the laptop they've got in front of them is going to last forever or the hard drive that they're storing their photos on is going to last forever. It doesn't. You know, we're losing all these memories all the time. But in uh, intergenerational oral cultures that, you know, are designed to run over deep time through these institutions, that's the only safe way to store data. So, you know, we have data like um, uh, the physical habits of extinct megafauna in Australia, megafauna that hasn't been around for 12,000 years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're able to tell paleontologists the behaviour of, um, of giant bloody you know, 20 meter long goannas, um, monitor lizards, you know, really big like dinosaurs here. We have that in, in our memory, you know, because the stories get passed down, but with physical actions to show how that, how that creature moved, uh, what its eating habits were, how it didn't like ants, but it was a carrion eater. So, you know, its practice of how it would remove ants from carrion before it would eat it. That's pretty specific, and you can't find that in the fossil record, you know, uh, the way its head moved. But also, nobody knows what colour dinosaurs were. No one knows what colour they were. We do. Uh, that one, <laughs> we know uh, we can describe and we can paint still, you know, from that that uh, ancestral hard drive, we can paint the, um, the markings for you of that, that extinct megafauna that big dinosaur lizard, you know, we know what color it was because we remember, you know, it's in our hard drive. And, um, you know, you just don't have that. You've got to be careful. You've got to be really careful what you trust to really temporary uh, knowledge storage things, you know. And I think, um, I mean, you know, the stone circles in Europe um, and around the world, these were um, these were experiments with, with creating permanent repositories for human memory. But how did that work out for you? I mean, you know, <laughs> does anybody remember all the ancient knowledge that Stonehenge um, was supposed to hold? Mm. You know, that's gone. So even that, that's not permanent enough. It's in your relations, in your relationships, and your commitment to having permanent, eternal institutions that are at the same time, they are immensely adaptive and constantly changing. Because that ironically, <laughs> the ability to change is what makes something sustainable. Mm. You know, uh, sustainable is not static. It's not permanent. So you said we shouldn't be mining the margins for indigenous wisdom. We don't need to be looking for some exotic other when we can find a lot of it right there with you. When we look within ourselves, what are the fragments that are often found? These are encoded within you, like uh, migration routes are coded into birds and whales and fish and all kinds of things, you know. I mean, it's there. <laughs> and I guess if you want to look for it, look at your behaviours after a big shock. So a major calamity when, um, you know, the, uh, the structures of the state and the economy are temporarily removed. What are the cooperative frameworks that emerge with that group of people who are suddenly in crisis and having to um, get each other through it? Because mm. uh, those probably are your patterned ancestral governance structures that are sustainable. So you find them there after a crisis, you know, but you find them if you, um, 
you know, if you step out of the structures that are being imposed on you, you know, by a global economic system, anytime you try to set those aside and have a look at what your actual responses are to things and your ways of doing things, then you'll find them there. And then you'll have something to bring to the table in dialogue with Indigenous people and, and you know, other people from other cultures. Um, the Vikings used to call that um, uh, finfaring. Uh, finfaring was the practice of going and sitting with the Same uh, indigenous people and uh, Greenlanders used to um, go and sit with the Inuit and all that sort of thing. Um, idea was to, um, you know, was to grow their knowledge through dialogue and to actually learn, relearn whatever it was that they'd lost about, uh, about land-based knowledge, you know, in that spirit of connection with the landscape. Um, so, you know, finfaring is something that's happened forever like that. And I think it's a, it's a really good model. Um, I've been talking to a lot of you know, Vikings who were actually doing that and to Brazil and, and learning about creolization and, and, and cultural things from them. They're not actually taking, you know, Brazilian, Afro-Brazilian culture back to Scandinavia. You know, they're not taking back rattles and bloody things like that and hair braids, but they're bringing back, you know, a, a sort of a dialogical kind of methodology for for coming into place, for having a culture that's been uprooted from somewhere else and then been brought into a place and then has to establish a relation with the entities of that landscape, you know. So they're bringing that patterns of being and the processes uh, for cultural recovery, you know. Um, they're bringing that back. And I find that work really exciting. And, um, and I think that's something that people need to become engaged with. But you're not going to find the answers in the material cultures of, of the people that you interact with. You know, you're not going to find it in the, the symbols that you bring back. The, 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 you know, you go to the Caribbean and, and just the music will, will do something to you there. And then you think, oh, well, I need to capture that and take it home. So you come back with your, you know, music bowl thing and, and then you, you try and play it in front of your friends. But you're not in relation over there anymore. You're just there on your own. And so you're playing and everyone's rolling their eyes and saying, dude, can you get those freaking braids out of your hair? They look ridiculous. And that steel drum sounds stupid. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, if you'd be so kind to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? I really want to read Scale right now, but I'm, my wife won't let me read it until we're both reading it together because we've got two copies, but then she doesn't have time to read it. So I'm like, oh, so, but that's the thing. You know, I really want the knowledge in that book, but I, I refuse to um, just charge in as an individual and take it. That's, that's something I'm doing, us two, me and my woman are doing together. And if that takes another five years to get to it and no one's talking about it anymore, then that's fine. If the knowledge is good, then it'll still be valid in five years. Uh, if it's not valid in five years, I didn't need to know it anyway. But as soon as, uh, you know, our kids stop bloody torturing us, uh, we'll probably read that book together. I don't have time to read too much right now, but I am getting through this other one called uh, The Weirdest People on Earth. That's why I keep referencing uh, Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich Democratic, because that's uh, something I'm reading about right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those. And then last question I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? My woman. I'd love to have five minutes to sit down and have a drink with her. It'd be deadly. Just five minutes where we weren't talking about kids or work or bloody dates or times or anything like that. That'd be deadly. She's the one I want to have a drink with. 
That's one of the best answers I've heard in 123 episodes. All right, Tyson, I'll have, <laughs> I'll have links to your books in the show notes. Anywhere else you want people to go to connect with you? Nah, I'm, I'm not into promotion. I'm just here for the yarns, bro. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.